Welcome to the Machination Log, everyone. It's not the morning, but it is going to be Christmas Eve when this goes up, or it'll be after Christmas because I'll stuff this in after some other thing. I didn't actually record a thing. We did a, we and Royal We here uh, did a straw poll at uh, Midwest Fur Fest, and the results for that are up on the website. I'll probably do a separate thing where I just enumerate those for the people oh, who don't read because we have a lot of those apparently in the audience. Um, but in any case, we're here for a movie review. And uh, we got Nicole and Ryan. Yo. Yeah, we got yeah. classic movie this movie is, crew action. This is sort of like a like an epic hitch because we're probably going to continue with epics because this one turned out to be like not great. And I I partially and not great as an epic or not great in general. Oh, both. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, let's have let's have an argument. I, yeah, I would I would say one more than the other, but we'll get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Apologies for the echo in here. I didn't really feel like setting stuff up in the theater, and I'll figure out how to make this room. We'll more keep it. We'll keep this point. one short. I want. This is supposed to be the theater. Like, I called this room the theater in my head, but it's so echoey in here, you can't use it for that purpose. And it's going to be really hard to build an additional room in here that is soundproof. Yeah, it's going to be expensive. What's wrong with the movie cave? What? I, it's not roomy enough. I want the space to walk around. Like, you can't stand up in there. Uh -huh. It's it's too claustrophobic. Out here, you can like move around. You like even the way I'm sitting right now, I can't sit. You do look way more casual. than oh, yeah. you do in the other room. <laughs> I, I feel I feel relaxed. Gotcha. I feel like I'm on vacation right yeah. now. Oh, it's the headspace. You know, like you've got a lot of headspace oh, yeah. in this room. No, one hundred percent. No, like I kind of want to. I don't want to get rid of the whiteboard, but I do want to cover it with four inch foam panels because I feel like that would do a good job bringing us closer to equilibrium. That is going to prevent you from using the whiteboard, though. It would. That's kind of the problem with that strategy. Um, I could also cover this giant wolf mural with them. Never. Or that. That's fine. This is actually probably contestant number one would be the wall behind me. But in well, any it case. It has the least painting on it. It does. It actually has the most paint because that wall <laughs> But was it's the least decorative. Yeah, yeah. That, that wall was the most peach when yeah. we were in here. It took a lot of whitewash to get it even that color, so... Yeah, no, the aesthetic of this room is definitely primer chic. Yeah, I like it. <laughs> Absolutely. It's got... it's good. There's accents. <laughs> yes, you got that right. I got feng shui going on here. There's purple south. There's... We got... Anyway, so... I don't know what feng shui actually is. I just know that it involves directions. It, it it has something to do with the fact that Asians don't know how to decorate a house. Yeah, and like and like many useless things, it was invented in the eighties. Was it now? Yeah, that's believable, even if it's not true. I have no idea when it was invented. So this movie, yeah, this movie, <laughs> Days of Heaven. We're we're trying to get around that because. Yeah. You know, well, nobody I, wants to talk about it. I don't it. have much to say, Ryan. I'm I'm sure you'll I'm be indignant it. about let's that. Do this shit. All right. So this is a movie by Terence Malik. Uh, is the artsy way to say that name? Uh, this is his second movie uh, made in the '70s, uh, and his second movie overall uh, since he started making them. In yeah, the 70s. he started out his career like really slowly. Like mm -hmm. he put out a movie once every decade or so yeah well he doesn't he doesn't direct another movie until 1997's uh the thin red line so this is a big departure point in his career is uh really um uh, days of heaven uh badlands which is the first movie he did um and then there's a there's a big 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 gap between everything mm -hmm. else that comes after this so um i think that one of the best ways to kind of start from looking at this movie is um kind of like talking about the the uh what's in it who's in it because plot wise i think that we'll kind of get into that here in just a second so now, Terence Malik uh, is uh, directs this movie. 
Uh, and it stars uh, Richard Gere, uh, Brooke Adams, uh, and Sam Shepard uh, as the three main um, uh, couples, uh, three main, excuse me, the three main characters in the film. Um, Richard Gere's character and Brooke Adams uh, represent a couple, um, and Sam Shepard is um, the... Uh, wealthy landowner. Yeah, wealthy landowner that forms the basic dramatic tension um, of this of this very bare-bones plot uh, and story within this movie. So of this rich-poor love triangle. Yeah, and... Um, I think that when we approach this kind of from the uh, understanding of what this movie is in his career, um, this is really um, and uh, when Terrence Malick, I think, adopts this uh, style of filmmaking that becomes very synonymous with uh, a Terrence Malick-like film. And so if I could go ahead and characterize the feel of this movie before we get into all the nitpicky stuff uh, about who makes it, how they made it, and the details. Uh, I think the one thing that characterizes um, Terrence Malick's filmmaking most especially um, is the idea of memory within film, uh, the uh, disassociated nature between uh, the plot and the dramatic tension, and this ethereal, dreamlike quality that I think he intentionally tries uh, to present in his film. Through landscape, yeah, basically. Through, 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 through a very landscape-focused, through a very detached camera from the uh, perspective of the characters. Uh, the second thing I think that kind of characterizes his filmmaking, um, and one that I would really, uh, and I don't want to use this word lightly, but I think he strives for a poetic sense of what cinema can be. And I think the idea of poetry uh, fits neatly into this. And so if there's a first argument that we could get into here, um, I don't think anybody around this table reads poetry. Do you guys read, when was the last time you read poetry that wasn't required by someone else? Yesterday. Okay. Nicole? Um, I haven't read any uh, recently, but I'm not opposed to it. I just don't have like access. I don't know where you look up poetry okay. now that I'm not I, I, in to, an academic over setting. Over the summer was the last time I okay. actively engaged, and that was Alfred Lord Tennyson was the last poetry I read. Yeah, to be fair, the poetry that I tend to read is partially anti-poetry. I mean, um, we're not talking about like limericks in a bathroom, right? No, 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 okay, no. Okay, good. No, but <laughs> I'm, I'm talking... about my favorite style of poetry. No, but I am talking about people who seem a little contemptuous of the format. Okay, good. Um, right. People like Billy Collins. Okay. Uh, who was the poet laureate a couple mm -hmm. of years ago. Absolutely. Um, he writes poetry, and like most poets nowadays, he writes poems about poets. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But... Um, but no, I'm when I'm looking for poetry, given that I'm not a fiction guy anyway, it would make sense that I lean toward the nonfiction side of poetry, mm -hmm. where it, which which is just sort of the the more direct reverence of death and love and mm -hmm. rhymes and verses. Like that's the kind of stuff I gravitate toward. Well, and I think that right poetry. I mean, why it's so maligned, especially with you know the rubes, is that you know it is ostentatious. Uh, it is overworked. It's uh, impressionistic. Yeah. It, well, it's, it, especially in the sense that you know it says it says you know it says something that is n not intended to be clearly stated, right? Like it, it is not it is not concise. It is not clear as an as I think someone with non artistic sensibilities would put forward. Um, and, and and if necessary, <laughs> I think that one of the reasons that initially what poetry appears to be is it appears to be unnecessary. Right, to a lot of people's lives, poetry is simply unnecessary. And yet, you know, the absence of poetry would be really stark because it's one of those things where, you know, you have this like ideal or this, um, you know, this art form that's kind of like, you know, culturated within this very high group of elites. But I think it has transition effects or it has this kind of like spillover effect on the wider culture that for people that don't directly engage with it would certainly know it's, notice its absence if it was suddenly taken out of our culture. Mm -hmm. 
And this is one of those things when, you know, you're, you know, when you get called pretentious or when you're trying to like defend these, you know, higher level of cultural and scare quotes, um, you're trying to defend these things that, that represent high culture, uh, you know, you tend to run into the fact that I think people just see it as like, God damn it, like it, if it's not done well, it's completely pointless. And even when it's done well, it appears unnecessary. And there's, I think that leveling these kind of problems or critiques that Terrence Malick, um, uh, first off, I think is uh, unwise and unfair. And secondarily, I think it misses the point. So, um, and kind of like setting myself up to defend Terrence Malick, I do want to just put forward that idea of poetry, uh, that it is unnecessary, that it is overwrought. Uh, uh, and to be honest with you, I think I think it is, to a certain degree, perhaps a little self-indulgent as well. I'll be terse because I want to go through this on a plot point basis. Mm -hmm. We will bring the word pretentious back up, Ryan, cool. partially because you are a fan of that word. Yes, absolutely. Specifically in antithesizing it. Um, talking about things that are not, in fact, pretentious because they're not pretending. Yes. And I want to throw that back in your face. Great. Okay, cool. Uh, by the time we're done here. Uh, but to put it mildly, Richard Gere uh -huh. is... a Even if this movie was, like, good in a foreground sense, which I would debate it is not, okay. um, Richard Gere might be my least favorite person. I used to think <laughs> it was James Franco. But James Franco... And I don't like James Franco... For the reasons I don't like most people that front, that pretend to be people they're not. He smiles too much. He is attractive in an incredibly superficial way. And granted, he was born with those traits. I'm not saying this is not a condemnation. He's probably a very good person. And honestly, he Richard can't help it. You Richard know? Gere might be as well, but I cannot trust a person like that. And Richard Gere has the most superficial charm I've ever seen in an actor. Mm -hmm. And it was so bad that. I missed the middle of both my viewings, mm -hmm. utterly repulsed by the drama, mm -hmm. um, and had to focus on the background, which luckily is the good part of the film. Yeah. yeah. Because whether there is plot in this film or not, I don't give a shit what happens to anyone in this film. Mm -hmm. Like, they suck so bad in just a very basic judgmental personal way to me that I don't, I just don't care. Well, okay. And gear in this movie really it had been quite some time since i had watched this mm -hmm. uh and rewatching it now like he does stick out like a sore thumb now this movie a couple of the reasons i had recommended this movie because there's two things i specifically liked about it and one is that it does deal with the time that does not get kind of tackled in film much i mean we're talking like early 19th century we're talking about like migrant like factory and farm workers yeah. it's a second industrial revolution yeah i mean so it's it's kind of a peculiar time and place to set a movie like there's you know we don't we don't tackle this time in history very <laughs> right. often no. and i do like the little like a uh, poor like the the poor uh chain-smoking nine-year-old cockney girl <laughs> that narrates the film. Like, I found that very endearing. Um, but Richard Gere, you have, amongst all this ugliness, because we start out in Chicago, and these people are, like, factory workers. He work like, Gere works in a steel mill, and she works in some factory thing. They're, like, street people. This guy is so ridiculously good-looking amongst <laughs> a barrage of poor migrant folk that he sticks out like a sore thumb the entire movie. Mm -hmm. 
And yeah. like that's where you're like that's where you're going. So it's really hard to buy in right from the get go because like this guy is way too good looking to be a poor person. They don't even smudge his face. No, they don't do any. And that tan work. he has, she. The, okay, so Brooke Adams goes specifically into a story about when she was a factory worker, she never saw the outside. Her her skin was white as paper. Mm-hmm. Richard Gere's tan throughout this movie <laughs> is something you could only buy in a Hollywood tanning bed. Yeah, I mean it. It ruins some of the juxtaposition of the whole film. <laughs> no, and, and I'm not... Okay, so I think that you guys have clearly hit on one of the biggest problems of this movie, and it is and it is Richard Gere. And it's... I mean, it, just to pile on here, too. All right, so this is Richard Gere's first movie he made as a main lead, but it is in the... Wasn't chronology. this like his second film? Yeah, it's his second yeah. film but that he was a star in because Terrence Malik um, took, uh, took a year to edit this movie, right? Like, okay. over a, over a year editing this movie. And what's um, what's frustrating about this performance is that normally, right, when you take someone who is not or has very little experience as an actor, you want it because you would hopefully be able to get a performance that doesn't feel like a person is trying to act. And yet there's not a scene in this movie where Richard Gere is not trying to act the shit out of that out of that part. You know, he's and um, the like the the kind of affect that he has is this weird, cocky, you know, quick movement, um, rebellious, like this, like weird, yeah, like he, rebelliousness. Yeah, and like he feels like the like right from the get go, we learned that he basically feels like the universe owes him something. Yeah, he, he looks like he's fronting at all times. Oh yeah. my god! And it's, I mean, and and it is, it is not charismatic. Um, it's not, no, it's, it's no, not interesting. See, this is the fucking problem. Right? <laughs> and this is the pretentious thing comes in here. Gotcha. He plays this leading role in American Gigolo in a couple of years because people do, in fact, find him absurdly charismatic. Yeah. Like, this is, he is a, like, stereotype yeah. of what an attractive person looks like in a way that, again, is why I can't trust Rotten Tomatoes. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that 97% of critics like a movie is a red flag that I'm going to hate a movie because if that that many people can't like something I like, apparently. Because mm-hmm. whatever people use, whatever machinery is going on to intuit the trustworthiness or charisma of a normal person doesn't work for me. I'm not saying this is a universal condemnation. I don't like Richard Gere. No, and look, his acting is, I mean, he is a... Um in the scope of the film, he's one of the worst things in it, right? And, and it, there's and what's amazing is that in the scope of the movie, it's so airy in its story, there's so little acting that even needs to be done. Mm-hmm. And that is bad. Yeah. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Those so, points. Okay, so all right, now I'm going to start defending the film because, um, so and essentially, let's go ahead and get the plot out of the way, right? Well, we're in, we're, we're in the first part of it. We're yeah. in the steel mill. Yeah, we're in the steel yeah. mill. Okay, yes, yeah, so we're in the steel mill. Um, Richard Gere is uh, is the leader of a group of three people: his girlfriend Brooke Adams, uh, and his uh, and his actual sister, yeah. uh, someone I don't remember. So um, Gere, his his girlfriend, and uh, his younger, much younger sister. Yeah, like she's the nine year old chain yeah. smoker that is narrating this whole thing. Yeah, they have to flee uh, Chicago because Richard Gere kills his boss in a fracas uh, in a factory, and, and they're riding on top of uh, on top of train. Uh, out west into the uh, you know into the wheat fields, uh, literally into the wheat fields, mm-hmm. um, yeah. to escape this uh, what, what's coming at them. Uh, the what, when, justice, yeah, justice, yes. yeah, no, yes. <laughs> he spends a lot box. of time trying to escape justice. And so it becomes when, a theme when they um, when they arrive, uh, when they when they jump off the train with a bunch of migrants and they uh, they find work as shockers in the, in the wheat fields. Uh, 
they come to the palatial uh, uh, palatial mansion slash plantation of uh, Sam Shepard, uh, uh, who is the uh, you know the owner of this of the. Yeah, he's just a single dude that owns a big wheat owns a farm and wheat. Yeah. hires a lot of people to Love, to take care of it to take him. care of that shit. So uh, now we're in the plot, and uh, the rest of the film is essentially what he tells. Um, what he tells people is that his girlfriend is actually his sister, right? So, in the for the, uh, for everyone else on this big farm, uh, Richard Gere and his uh, is with his two sisters, uh, and they're simply just traveling around looking for work together. Uh, it's, uh, from the outset, nobody buys the fact uh, that Richard Gere, uh, or the, between the other migrant workers, nobody fucking buys the fact that Richard Gere um, is uh, that his girlfriend is actually his sister. Yeah, and uh, I think the reason they do this is it's imp- once again there's not a lot explained in this movie. Uh, but essentially, there has to be some sort of uh, uh, some sort of front uh, that you know they're unmarried, they're young, and that you can't apparently be with someone in the same area unless you're married to them, right? Yeah. So to like have to avoid, you know, the uh, uh, the s- like social faux pas of having like a, a common fuck, yeah, law a, wife, yeah, a girlfriend, fuck buddy that yeah. you, you have you have with your sister. They have to put this put on the airs that they're all family, and um, what essentially he finds out is is that uh, Richard Gere through subversion. Uh, finds out that the owner um, is apparently ill and uh, gravely ill, if not fatally ill, terminally ill, as the, as the saying goes, and, and um, that he has not, he doesn't have much longer to live. And why this is important um, is because the owner has apparently taken, or at least uh, noticed, um, uh, Richard Gearfriend's uh, girlfriend slash. Uh, What's her name in the movie? I know her name's Brooke Brooke Adams. She has the most amazing perma frown I've ever seen on a person. Yeah, Abby. 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 Okay, yeah. So So he seems to have taken a notice to Abby in the field. So Richard Gere, who thinks that the universe fucking owes him something. Mm -hmm. Well, they're looking ahead. I mean, he's got this kind of street urchin you know this like you know jack london-esque kind of i'm gonna i'm gonna get my make my first million kind of personality yeah like i'm gonna find a deal and it's gonna set me off right yeah i just gotta look for that big score yeah like kind of mentality no the generation before his had that look he does not have that look he looks like he's after his second million after his dad gave him his first million (laughs) and he blew it on whatever it is he blew it on like like, he looks no he looks like a a poor irishman like he's got that lineage Mm -hmm. he does not have that look Mm -hmm. like he is in this again like We've glossed over all the things I like about this film. Oh, no, no. All I just the, want to catch this up so we can they move got, on to the rest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the steel mill shots, they spend at least as much time admiring the, you know, the tungsten glow mm-hmm. of melting this steel down and they do as a they lot do of, And they do the a lot of fun things with, with sound because these are very loud areas and, yeah. you know, the sound goes in and out against the machinery and there's like, yeah, some like beautiful shots of like liquid... Steel pouring out of places. Right. Yeah, there's there's a ton of tight action shots that yeah. happen. They go on the train, and you got you know a hundred people in this caravan going through these wheat fields. The most iconic shot in the film, besides the finale, to me, is the gate mm-hmm. on the way to the mansion. And yeah. it's funny because you mentioned you you call it a mansion, like a palatial estate, and it doesn't like that. Those aren't words that would not they would not have occurred to me in the way that it's set because you see the gate, which is guarding essentially wheat. Wheat. There's yeah. no wall yeah. for this gate. It's just this construct. And then it, the there's just a little pans. house like recessed in the yeah. background. Like it's, it's a big house, but it's a much bigger yard. Oh yeah. <laughs> so <Absolutely. laughs> like it's got 
like and that that shot is great like that because that that shot shows the essential emptiness that we're gonna have to live with for mm-hmm. the rest of this film mm-hmm. um and you know they're they're sacking wheat and there's the foreman who is like if any character was going to save this film for me it was going to be the foreman and i didn't even like him mm-hmm. <laughs> but i think that's mostly just run off from not liking gear yeah um he like, gets in it with the foreman like there's there is foreground to this film there is like again there's there's the setup of a love triangle we're about to get to the second act where that actually matters mm-hmm. as opposed you know in the first act they're just sort of the the nine-year-old uh, did she actually have a name here uh linda she's named linda sure. like okay. her sure. actual actor oh, okay uh, linda mance um <laughs> But, uh, I mean, she does almost all of the explaining. I don't even know if a character on screen actually demonstrates that the farmer is sick. Doesn't... No, Gear is like... says that. Well, yeah. Well, Gear is like... uh, He's hiding behind... Yeah, he's trying to steal something. He's trying from to the, steal uh, something from the the medical van. Yeah, Linda's character's got some, like... um, Got... um, Cut herself or has got, like, scars and stuff on her hands from the work... And so he's trying to steal, steal this, like, some salve or something. Yeah, yeah some salve. So like when the doctor is there, he's out stealing something and just overhears the doctor saying uh, to yeah, Sam Shepard's character bro. that like, yeah, your condition's not getting any better. Yeah. yeah I, I, and if there's not I mean, any indication on what this condition is, just that it's not getting better. Yeah. I literally, I sat, I sat through this movie two times and don't remember that happening. Okay. Yeah. And then, and then of course, you know, because all of the actual exposition is just told in narration by Linda, then it's like, oh. Oh, yeah, well, he was six. Then, you know, Richard Gere had an idea, and it sounded good. <laughs> yeah, so the thing... Okay, so, because we're essentially halfway through the movie now. Yeah, um, yeah So, much. all right. I think there's two things I want to kind of bring up here first, is that, first off, there's this idea of memory that I think the film relies heavily on. So we got to kind of get into the technical way that the film is revealed to us. Well, first off, are the opening shots and the, and the credits um, give us the basic indication that we're, that, that we're being transported through the through the veil of memory and uh, into, into the past and the way that it does this is it shows these these you know photographs from the turn of you know turn of the of america in the 20th century right and uh, these are things these photos are really fucking cool uh, very stark and um you know I, I mean there's this thing about looking at old photographs right i mean like even watching old movies right you watch a movie from the 20s and it's like fucking everyone that had a hand in this thing is dead now right like yeah. I mean, it is it is of the past right there is there is no real link to the present from from looking at these photos, right? Like, and even the things these people were building might not even be standing anymore presently anyway. So, and the music then that overlays this credit scene is this Ennio Morricone score. Um, it's these, it's this uh, twinkling kind of sound that moves forward. Um, if you put it in the, in the podcast, you don't have to, but you'll definitely recognize it because it's been used ever since to kind of represent this ethereal dreamlike uh, landscape that we're kind of entering into. The second thing that uh, reveals uh, that this might be um, related to memory too is that we have this narration. And once again, when we talk about narration in film, you basically have someone who is like, you know, omnipresent, right? Like, how does this person know what's going on? Um, and are they revealing to us the actual truth and information of this uh, of the story? And I don't think we are, right? Like, there's a disconnect between the way the camera operates, which is this bizarre, clear-moving ethereal slice of life like camera which is clearly staged and is clearly meant to show us something gorgeous and beautiful and yet we're given the the narration of this you know gruff 
uh, um, oh, she, has, she has like the graveliest voice for a nine-year-old. Yeah, and, it's fantastic. Yeah, and so there's a great juxtaposition behind these two things where we get this just absurd, uh, you know, street le- a street urchin level narration. Um, but also, of course, her voice is of a child's, right? So you don't even really get the sense that this is like an adult revealing something to us in the past. And I think that this is all done intentionally. And I think it just sets you up to have a little bit of discombobulation, right? Like we're in the past. Our narration is uh, our narrator. Narrator is seemingly in the present, narrating us in the story, but it's it's unsettling. Uh, the second major thing that leads us to this kind of bizarre dreamlike scape uh, is the cinematography, is the way in which the film is shot. Well, and that's really where Malik, like that's Malik's strongest suit is is the visual poetry in mm-hmm. which these stories take place because it's certainly not in the storytelling in and of itself. Was there, I mean, I literally don't know, was there such a thing as a nature documentary in the 70s? Yes. Uh, Attenborough started doing that uh, right around the 70s. He started doing like the really good ones. He started in the 50s, but like they started funding him real well right around the 70s. You got the, you got the Mutual of Omaha stuff around this time period as well too. So, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me of uh, oh, the, the nature series that was yeah. sponsored by Mutual of Omaha. So I just, I, I feel like that's what he wanted to do. And it just wasn't a format. See, the problem is the problem is you're saying that only because you haven't seen anything else by him. Because sure. all of his movies are visual poetry and basically unwatchable otherwise. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a lot of ways that could go. I'm not sure which. I mean, it's not like it's not like that kind of. It's not like that kind of construction because doesn't even, exist because if you in read if you read the if you read what people hate about Days of Heaven and what they hate about whichever movie he did most currently, it's that there is more time spent on like looking at a rabbit in a field than actually having any kind of like character that you care about. That's fine. Um, I'm I'm okay with that as long as I know that that's what I'm in for. That's like I, I so don't I don't want to be rudely. It's informed. built in there. <laughs> I, I don't want to be rudely informed in the middle okay. of the film <laughs> that I don't that I shouldn't in fact care about these people because well that's I don't think you're I, well I, this is the thing I think it's just a problem with his storytelling that you don't care because I don't get the sense that he doesn't want you to care it's that when you watch it you're like fuck all these people Tree of Life had the same problem it had Brad Pitt is the suburban dad but then we're watching the rise of fucking existence from the dinosaurs on in these beautiful poetic shots. And then we've got like Brad Pitt being a suburban asshole dad. And I was like, listen, I don't give a fuck about Brad Pitt. Look, look, that you said a bunch of things that sound like they would make for a great protagonist to me. You've got a suburban antihero played by Brad Pitt. No. So if he manages to fuck that up, that's on Terrence Malick. Look, like you guys, I don't <laughs> look. I'm not watching that one. You could watch that on your own. Look, if Terrence Malick has a sin here, it's wanting to put it's wanting to put reality into his, into the poetry. I mean, people in love take shit and clip and clip their toenails. You know, there's no fucking sense that like it has to be all one thing or the other, right? Like, I don't know what you guys are critiquing here, right? Like, did you want like a character drama uh, that that like you know had like the basic kind of you know, plot elements of a love triangle where, like, you know, there's nothing but fucking dialogue coming through it? Or did you no, just No, but I'd this like to not, to like, like, hate the people that I'm I'm watching. And, I mean, Gear reflects that, and definitely the stupid 
Brad Pitt in, in his later films. <laughs> but see, the stuff that I do like about it, though, is like the Linda, like the narrator. Like, she is just a fucking product of her time. So what we're looking at, like, she is like a vapid product of this. And I feel that from, like, her, but I don't feel it, like, extensively from, like, the rest of the movie. No, I think that, I, look, I think you guys will, you know, once again, if you're you're using Richard Gere as a way to block your the other way that you can kind of build any sort of connections with the character. So I like Brooke Adams in this thing. I, You know, her perma frown is the fact that, you know, she's not exactly trying that hard or doing that much. Um, the problem... I think and these that, people have no input. I mean, their only input is looking at wheat. Well, yeah, but then you can't, look, you can't say that, like, look, I... Um, I don't feel for these characters because I haven't been the, the their relationship has not been revealed to me in the way that I'm used to being told people are in love. Like, you know, I mean, yeah, they could have like had a lot of conversations and fought and fucked on the screen and then people would have clicked in their heads like, oh, my goodness, these characters care for each other all of a sudden. But Malik consciously doesn't want to make that distinction. Right. Like he reveals the uh, so there's another relationship between um, Linda, right, the, the youngest sister, mm -hmm. uh, Richard Gere's actual sister. And another uh, female, uh, another young woman um, in, uh, in the field, is, uh, um, working in the fields with her as well. And, you know, there is a lot of shots of, like, play that's happening, right? There's, like, a heated amount of work going on in the fields. Uh, but then also there is a lot of play, like, fucking them just fucking yeah. around with each other. But that's the stuff I actually like. Yeah, and so we have to – so here's the thing, right? You have to, at some point – uh, build a bridge between, <laughs> you know, just kind of fucking around and having a truly impressionistic vision of these things um, versus building tension and uh, building tension uh, and and uh, and an emotional resonance between characters, um, you know, that doesn't just bleed into the fact that we, you know, find ourselves in, you know, typical Hollywood sitcom-esque kind of interactions. Yeah, and Terrence completely fails to do Look, that. Look, I'm not to say that, but like, goddamn, point to me another fucking filmmaker that falls as heavily on the impressionistic side as he does. And the problem is you fucking can't. I mean, we would... We Harmony Corinne did the first two films We did, and made. then I think Godard is another famous yeah. director who fucking is not... But they couldn't maintain it. Yeah, is going, to uh, is going to show and not tell. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, yes, Terrence Malick has about 20% of tell in this film and 80% show. And I do agree that unfortunately having so much of your tell being based on Richard Gere is clearly the biggest <laughs> fucking fault in this movie. But it fucking does not undermine, nor does it make worse, the 80% of the film that is fucking gorgeous, intelligently well done, and is not insulting. I just don't find, I'm not, I'm not as angry coming out of this film as you guys seem to be uh, and having to go through the 20% that sucks. Terrence clearly cares about that story more than you are letting on mm -hmm. because there are more shots of awkward, either sexual or romantic tension in that film, all of which are bad. All of them. Every one of them suck. Okay, so... Um, he cares about this more than you are suggesting. All right, so I, dis I disagree. So essentially where we're at in the film plot now is that Richard Gere and Lynn, uh, and uh, Abby, uh, his, his girlfriend slash uh, fake sister have decided, or uh, he's at least, I think, coerced her, I think that's fair to say, yeah. into seducing the uh, the, far the, uh, the owner, the farmer, uh, in, uh, and uh, marrying him so that they can get his, you know, get his shit when he dies of this Because he's supposed he to has. die in like a year. Yeah, the illness they believe he has. Um, as they do this, the essentially the harvest season ends, they are kept on. Um, while he, you know, while he courts well, this he, woman. And he lets go everyone else. So, yeah. like, they're essentially the only people around Yeah, they're kept now. on as servants, helpers, what have you, part of the, part of the new family he's building. Um, but obviously there is problems, which is that, A, the fiction of Richard Gere being Abby's sister is not sustained. 
Uh, the owner becomes suspicious. Uh, the uh, the foreman you mentioned is, is suspicious, suspicious from the out, right? He's yeah. suspicious initially of all this of all this weirdness. Um, and he, he's very Mary Sue character. Yeah, and Richard Gere leaves the farm, right? He le- he eventually leaves the farm uh, um, to go travel away and to like let you know to let, do whatever it is he hope, does. Hope, 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 that, hope he dies in the interval. Yeah. Um, so all right. Uh, as we move the plot forward, we can come back to this t- period of time as well. Um, Richard Gere inevitably returns at some point in the story. And what I think is fucking really, really great about this is um, when Richard Gere returns, we have no actual, through dialogue or any sort of fucking normal technique of storytelling, catching us up about what happens here, right? Richard Gere arrives, and we as people observing the film have a lot of unanswered questions, right? Is is he going to take her away? Will she go with him? Is Has he, he been like her? successful yes. while he As, was gone? Because he's the, in a vehicle now when he comes back. And one of my favorite fucking technical storytelling type things that happens from all of this is um, that nothing really. I mean, it's it's bizarre. It's weird. Every you know, he's welcomed back, but we all this. Un, there's a oh, huge I guess I guess tension uh, between what what the fuck is happening with Richard Gere and and Abby, his mm-hmm. his girlfriend, uh, who's now married to the owner. And fuck, man, the best thing in this film that reveals is they're in the barn alone. Uh, Richard Gere and Abby are alone in the barn. We see them looking at uh, and talking, but we can't hear it. And the only thing we hear is Abby looks at him and uh, looks at us in the camera and says, no, just shakes her head. No. And, you know, we see all of those questions are immediately resolved in the sense that like, he no longer has this kind of control over this story, right? The, 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 the initial plot is no longer agreed to uh, their plot of, of stealing the money for all of this. Is she going to go with him? All questions are answered by one simple fucking thing, which is no. She just shakes his head at him and no. And the tragedy that kind of comes from that is that either, as, they're depart, as they leave the barn and there is this kind of like last parting kiss, mm-hmm. that's the one the farmer finally sees and that's the one that sets him over the edge in the jealous rage that encapsulates the last third, that sparks, literally sparks the last third of the fucking yeah. film. And I think that that is underrated in your est- in your viewing and estimation of the film. I think that's an incredibly fucking well thought out, well delivered, fucking complexly, a complex problem handled really simply. And I, I it's one of my favorite moments in the film and having rewatched it, I was, uh, and this secondarily leads to another problem in watching Malick films or films of this ilk, which is that when you don't explain a lot, the, the whole purpose of having a film that's, that is slow like this is for us to kind of think about and work through what's going on as we see this. There, you cannot have a, a, fast pace, a fast-paced impressionistic film like, like Malick has. Yeah. You have to have these longer moments where you're having to like work through what the fuck is kind of going on here. Like you, you have to kind of catch yourself up within these. And if you are not this kind of, if you lack the, the experience and practice of being this kind of active viewer of cinema, these movies appear long drawn out and boring in a weird way. Right. If you're, if you get bored while watching this movie, I would just say like, are you thinking enough about what's going on in the dynamics of the, of, of the story and the relationships between the characters? Because just because there's not a lot said does not mean there's a, not a lot happening within uh, the interaction of that uh, of the story. And that moment in particular, I think, encapsulates that really, really well. 
No, I disagree. You don't look sure about you don't that. Disagree. Yeah, you disagree with that. No, I, I, no I do. And for, one, for one thing, they do kiss prior and they just table that. But moreover, I mean, they, they kiss in the gazebo and he sees them there as well. He's just more trusting. So that the scene where he then catches them more explicitly kissing again for a second time is even more confusing, but especially the in, but if But the interval it. there is that he's left, right? Like, that's the point, is that he's left after the gazebo. After the gazebo scene... Richard Gere, that's why, that's why he leaves. Yeah. yeah. And well, then he, he also leaves back. because his plan isn't working because Homeboy was supposed to start getting real sick and he just kind of like, he, he doesn't get any sicker than he is when this all starts. So mm. it doesn't look like he's going to degrade fast enough for Richard Gere's fucking timeline. And he, you know, that's why he ends up having to leave because like this isn't all working out to plan for him. Right. Romantic tension isn't slow. It's born of misinformation. And when misinformation is clearly at hand or even a lack of information, the thing that generates is questions. And the questions don't ever seem to come from the film. They have to be self-generated the yeah. way that you're talking about. And I, there, there's not, there, there aren't enough wheels. There aren't enough wheels in motion for me to bother to keep asking questions halfway through this film. I mean, but it, once again, it is is your there's not a, there's your, not enough. But no, is your hatred of Richard Gere preventing that preventing you from asking those questions? Partially, it, yeah. And I think again, it is. I don't, I'm not saying that's not a mistake, but at the same point in time, it is your fault as the viewer. I mean, this that's not. I mean, it, there's, you know, it, for to say that I that this only works if. I have all of the fucking pieces of enjoyment necessary for this, right? We all bring our own picadillos, uh, you know, through the bizarre well, psychological journey we get there too. Yeah, but it's not that you know, like it's not the film's fault that we that like we have these aspects to our personality. I mean, Ryan, what what questions are you asking in your head? In the middle, they kiss at the gazebo. They cover it up. The farmer is stupid enough to buy the story the first time. What questions are in your head right So when, the, now? when he gets back, I mean, once again, the, the, when he gets no, back. No, not when they get back, before then. Because there's an interval where this should be the most tense moment of them all because gear is out of the picture. No, but the, okay, so the problem, the, the central dramatic problem is has she fallen in love with the farmer, right? Like that's the issue here. You don't think, I mean. Yeah, and, but that's one banal question that is like, and that, that should be the thing that holds the middle of this film together. But there's just not enough. There is not enough to ask any. So, like, you can't, you can't sit there and punt. This is the nature documentary side of it, and that part's fine. I'm okay sitting there and being bored by beautiful golden hour shots. That's fine. The romantic side of this cannot be under the spell of this single question the whole time. Because there is just that, that's. I mean, for one thing, I mean, maybe your, maybe this is another way in which my conception of romance is simply different than yours. But that question has to be probed, and this film just doesn't probe. No, I disagree because in, in the interval after the gazebo scene, we get we get what appears to be a kind of like like what would the normalcy of 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 Abby and the farmer's relationship be like right and you know how does the how does the actual sister work into that dynamic and relationship um you know i think we're 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 not necessarily teased and um that can everybody fit into this uh fit into this dynamic um there is some initial points that like clearly the the younger sister might not be able to adapt to this to this dynamic within this 
Um, we get the goofiness of the uh, of the travel of the flying circus that, that comes was, in. I, I mean, it was a good reprieve, um, but it is goofy. Yeah, no, <laughs> once again, part of the like weird dreamlike yeah. quality to this thing, right? Like, I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, well, does this happen? Does this ever happen? Who are these people? Like, fucking, like those kind of questions don't necessarily matter. Um, in like the, you know, the, like the, like the Hitchcockian frustration of like, you know, was he holding the knife in the right hand or the left hand? You know, like, like let's ease up on the fucking plot MacGuffins here. And, um, I think that we are, the, the question we're asked is, is what would the normalcy of this relationship look like without the malevolent, you know, the, the malevolent influence of Richard Gere, who is by the way, the fucking villain of the story. Oh yeah. Being honest with each other here. Like, well, guess um, cause you know, the Brooke Adams characters at, Abby is tends to be pretty wishy-washy because I think she, you know she feels bad for the farmer, but she never really, she never really completely sells out like what Richard Gere wants out of this. But she never really commits to the farmer either. You know, like she's no the agent the agency she has. I mean, this is you know it is she is she is a product of that time. Yeah, well, I mean, that's she's a, not a libertine. Yeah, you know, like, I mean this, and nor nor has anyone asked her to be right. Like these people are who they are. And you know the, the the within the scope of the story, she has a lot of uh, a lot of conflict and tension of you know lying to this person in order to get what they want. And I mean the the problem then too is that what if he doesn't die? I mean this is the, well that becomes the problem. Yes, exactly. And like this that's is, that's I, the exact problem that they end up with, and that's when things go from bad to worse. Yeah. So <laughs> so when Richard Gere ends up returning, um, it's a new harvest season that comes around. Um, and we, uh, you know, the, 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 <laughs> the days of heaven that turn, that turn out to be, um, you know, problematic, uh, leads us to the, uh, a great fucking sequence. In the oh film. yeah. So, so this is, this is, this this is, my is favorite probably like the best part of the movie is, um, how the locusts the come locust and like, uh, as far I mean, it's, it's an obvious choice. It's I so mean, it's, good though. Yeah. No, like, no, 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 no. I'm not saying it's bad. It's, no, it's, it's obviously it's the so scene. amazing. Yeah. yeah. There's, um, so there's this amazing thing where, so Abby is, uh, not, she gets tied up on the porch by the farmer because he's not real happy with her two timing it. And she, sort of tries to explain herself, but not really at all. So you never quite know where her allegiances are. Mm -hmm. And then amidst all that, a swarm of locusts come and take over the entire farm. And this is fucking dramatic because then they have to burn everything, <laughs> literally. And uh, it's just like a joy to just watch this entire farm go up in flames amongst well, like locusts and people that have no idea how to manage fire. Well, the, and the detail, uh, the, the details by which it tracks through that. It starts, it yeah. starts with just picking them off of food yeah, and then it's actually feeding the ducks, but yeah. it's very rapidly <laughs> degrades. And the, the, the ways in which fire comes into it are, are very well, I, they're very well uh, assembled because you have, you, you can assume that in any normal film, it would simply be like a brush fire of some kind sweeping through, but there are stages to this thing. Oh, they yeah. have a bonfire and the best part, the, my favorite it. is so once it's actually dark. Yeah. Out. Cause oh, everyone sorry. is like picking the locusts off and putting them in sacks and throwing them into the fire. <laughs> like that's like stage one that's of it. eradication. That's it's fucking so intense. fucking yeah. awesome. Yeah. The, the way the chaos <laughs> builds is just, cause it, it would be so easy to flatten this to just being 
the farming chaos, but there's yeah. there's stages no, it, of no, insanity. This, this goes on for like a long the, time. The best, the best one of which is the wagon on fire <laughs> going across and the farmer yelling to catch that mare as it just mm-hmm. goes and turns the rest of everything into ash. Mm-hmm. Um, at which point, of course, it has gradually become nighttime. Yeah. Like the... the it's no, this a whole very good this whole scene. sequence is like a thing of fucking beauty, and I think yeah. that's part of the reason why I had wanted to watch it because it's not so much the movie as a whole, but man, like some of its parts are just fucking radical. No, and you don't. <laughs> the thing, like, um, you know, where I think that we are once again, why would if this movie or Malik had never uh, had never done had never been made, right? If there had been no Terence Malik, if there had uh, been no Days of Heaven. Um, you know, obviously cinema would have continued on, right? There would have been um, a lot going on with it. But, you know, uh, I think the influence of, of, of Terrence Malick on like the Coen brothers, especially, I think is really felt in a lot of these sequences as well. And it's no surprise that uh, Haskell Wexler, um, who ended up really starting his career with this film, is yeah. a famous... Um, Very you know, famous cinematographer. Yeah, and who worked and inspired a lot of work with the Coen brothers as well. Uh, so the... <laughs> This sequence uh, is, uh, I think, one of the best sequences in Malik's career. It's one of my favorite fucking parts of any movie. Um, you know, it's in my top 25 or top 20 or top 10, if I'm being pressed, of sequences that I think is fucking really incredibly well done. I mean, once again, no, no CGI, no fucking, no, no miniature, no bullshit, right? This is like, this is like truth as filmmaking in one of its purest elements and two takes maximum yeah no doubt and like the if you got the camera on the one side of the farm mm-hmm. and then if that doesn't work out you flip it around and film it at sunrise tomorrow on yeah. the other side and, and if that doesn't get it yeah we're done. done yeah but this, this is no bullshit right like this is a field on fire right? oh yeah film, camera or no it's fucking that's like that's shit. like yeah like slowly like more things and more things are catching and there's like a lot of people also like involved in I mean, there's like people yeah. in and out and people spread fire and there is insects everywhere well, it's I so mean, impressive i mean that you know you could you could get like i mean this is this is biblical i mean like <laughs> this, this is oh it's real explicitly biblical. yeah yeah so, but so one of the best shots i think and one of the ways that we kind of are revealed that like richard Gere is the villain of this film is this one specific shot in between the um you know the uh the 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 flicking away of the locusts and the fires and burning getting mm-hmm. started is you know richard Gere in the foreground you know, the field and the mansion in the, in the background with other workers. And there's just this incredible shot where this fucking, the locusts all of a sudden take flight in this like massive swarm yeah. around him as he, as everyone looks around, like what the fuck do we do next? You know, and him being in the foreground in the shot as these locusts fucking appear is just absolutely, absolutely fucking incredible. And I mean, once again, like no CGI, like no, this is, this is intentionally, found and discovered and filmed. I mean, in a weird way, what's amazing about Malik films is that they're, and what's also, I think, the nature documentary-esque appeal of these things is that they are not staged, even though they are presented in staged ways, right? Like in an, in an Attenborough documentary, you know, the the narrative of that thing is false, but it is well, you have based to, well, you on, have, yeah. it is based on a true story, well, that's, right? Yeah, like, you have your footage fucking, and you have to kind of like work a narrative into the footage that you are able to capture of said animal. But it is based on a true way yeah. and a true story in the best possible way that's, that phrase becomes meaningful. And that is fucking part of the, of the brilliance of, I think, of what Malik tends to find. And 
in a lot, and he gets better at this as we go on. I would argue that, you know, Thin Red Line, which is a war movie, in quotes, and then Tree of Life also fucking are really great at capturing a lot of these, uh, a lot of these elements. And um, as we move after this sequence um, of uh, the fire descending upon the, fa of the farm, it's, uh, the, the farm itself being burned down, uh, the farmer dying in a, in a confrontation with Richard Gere, who go fucking who figure. accidentally murders, yeah, uh, which not <laughs> manslaughter, he accidentally murders, yeah, accidentally throat stabs him yeah, with a, with a screwdriver, him. yet another accidental murder. Oh um, God, I can't, you know. And then he has to run from justice again. Yes, go figure. He, with with Abby and his little sister, yeah. Right? So now again. they're on the run again. Yeah, we get this like. Tom Sawyer on the river esque kind of feel to it, um, and the foreman is not having it. He knew this guy was bad news yeah, from the beginning, and he is not letting him run away this time. But so see, you got your comeuppance. So strange. It's so weird. <laughs> yeah, and um, I mean, we're to run to the end of the film, right? I, this is the end of the yeah, film. So it they're is basically the end of the discovered film. Uh, camping in the woods after a after a, a sequence of well, a, because uh, they stole the farmer's car, traded it for a boat, and thought they would be on their merry way down the Mississippi. But yep. like I said, the foreman, he was not letting Richard <laughs> Gere get away this time. Yeah, um, we're shown a scene of of um, them being uh, Richard Gere being chased around the woods. Um, you know, cat and mouse through the through the forest kind of. He's situation. finally shot like the dog that he yeah, is. Yeah, gets gets mowed down, um, <laughs> and um, you know she freaks out. Um, but it turns out that the, the story doesn't end with his death, obviously, because he's not the main character. Right? He's the villain. Um, Linda and Abby uh, end up heading off on their own. Apparently, like Abby has received some sort of money from her husband being murdered by her lover slash fake brother. Um, there must you know. have been insurance for the thing yeah. going down, like burning yeah. down. Uh, she uh, installs uh, her little sister into this like boarding house-esque school for girls. School for girls, yeah. And um, I think the film ends in a kind of really funny way. Um, the little sister ends up reconnecting with uh, the older, young. Yeah, because younger. of course she's, you know, she's not really a school-going type of girl. Yeah, she's still got the touch of the street to her. And, yeah, um, <laughs> she, she ends up reconnecting with the um, younger girl we mentioned previously from the story. Ooh. You recognize her in the movie, um, and uh, you know they end up. They have a great exchange where she's like, where the girl's like, "Oh yeah, I'm gonna date this guy," but then he left. But then he was gonna buy me a fur. I never had a fur. Yeah, <laughs> and then like. <laughs> Linda's just like, oh, I hope things work out for her. Yeah, they, 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 and the movie kind of ends with them just kind of like wandering along yeah. the railroad tracks out yeah. into out into the the the. Because know, the I world. mean, these people are just essentially like nomads. Okay, so um, so now we've ended the movie. Um, so I think that so what are the days of heaven in this film? Right. What what part of this film constitutes the days of heaven that the title refers to? What. I don't know, it's probably when the Satan woman who seduces both the ambitious scrappy man and the unassuming uh, rich man, uh, she gets to spend her time uh, deciding between the two in the absence of one, mm -hmm. so uh, she gets, uh, again, she gets to have her golden hour romp, having it both ways, being front, a front for the ambitious one. <laughs> Uh, but doting to the more demure one because mm -hmm. she's actually the villain of this film. No, I still think Richard Gere's the villain of the film, but go I, ahead. I know you're trying to sell me on this film, Ryan, but it's not going to work. No, not by man. <laughs> no, I, I've seen, I the, I've seen the strategy. You, you, started, you, you started by derailing <laughs> the nature documentary side of it that I wanted to just be the film. Then you accused me of not understanding romance. And now gear and now gear is suddenly supposed to suck. I know where you're going with this. I can see the pattern. No, 
I, and I respect your hustle, but it's not going to work. No, no, no. I think that look, you could you could accept all of this and still not like it. But regardless, um, well, no, I, I, I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not suggesting that his that the, I, I, the I poor mean, ta- job he does is intentional. I mean, right? to, like, to 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 answer your, I don't. I don't know what, when else this movie's heavenly. So I don't really know when else to slot in there besides the time when Richard Gere's not there. No. Well, also, who are we? Is it like because. Because Linda is the narrator, so I mean, whose days of heaven are we referring to specifically? That would still be Linda's days of heaven. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, it it would be, because she's basically along for the ride on all of this. Yeah. No, but I think, too, that there's, you know, the the darkness of of Malik's vision is, you know, borne out in in several key ways here, right? Like, I think that, you know, part of the the, the broader aesthetic and uh, film's uh, elements that he brings into this is, you know, the, the overbearing of technology... Uh, on uh, on our lives and and the um, and the, the constraints that this puts on people, I think the best way that, that to demonstrate this is really twofold, right? Like uh, the, the initial scenes in the foundry in the city, um, you know, the, the fucking noise is oppressively loud, right? And yeah. the argument and the exchange that Gear has with the other factory workers that leads to his first accidental murder, um, you know, you don't even hear, you can't even. I hear never the had dialogue. a chance. Yeah, exactly. You can't even hear the dialogue that happens in the film because of this. And the only other time in the in the movie where we experience that same kind of of um, disassociation from human contact in the film is when uh, the threshers come yeah. out uh, in the fields, and suddenly that that uh, that uh, um, and then we're supposed assumes to, everything else around. Yeah, them, right? and then we we just have to imagine that all the wildlife is getting ground up, and we mm-hmm. just have to accept that. Well, and we're, and we're yeah, people people come back into this cog like existence, right? Mm-hmm. So it's. It's not merely that, you know, it's it's not that the cities represent this kind of, like, mechanical, um, you know, dehumanization, right? Like, no, the machines are brought into nature as well, right? And I think the false the falseness of this um, is represented also in the love triangle as well. We're never, we're never purely in some sort of state of, uh, of this, like, delight or ecstasy or the heaven that is represented, right? I mean, that's why it's days of heaven, not weeks or months of heaven, you know? Like, it's, like, fucking fleeting and, uh, and uh, temporary, the relief that people get from the kind of, you know, of, of, of the shit that they go through. I mean, if there's one redeeming grace of Abby and uh, Gears, Richard Gere's relationship in the film is that, I mean, the one thing they have is a kind of, you know, a bond formed through hardship, and that is one thing that is persistent through this film is the fucking hardship of these people's lives. There's, yeah. a, there's a really crazy scene where they're fucking like it's snowing out during like towards the end of the harvest. And these people are like in their regular fucking clothes. Yeah, just like, sleeping in the just, snow. Yeah, like against a bale of fucking wheat. Like, like fuck that. Like, yeah. like fuck that shit. That stuff is sharp too. It's not soft. Fuck, man. And so like the 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 starkness and hardship of these people's lives and the the fact that they live them out in this kind of like fucking ignorant illiterate fucking idiocy, you know? Like it's it's really fucking harsh the 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 vision of this world and I think that the the tension and dichotomy of how the movie's made through the dreamlike beauty of what the of where these people are yet never fucking fully free of their own fucking defects and of the the harshness of the fucking world they live in um, is something that just, like, fucking stimulates my imagination. Like, I can't, like, man, like, watching this thing, I don't know why this thing just fucking just gets my synapses firing, man. But, like... Me neither. I, yeah, I know. It's fucking strange, but, like, it it something that I... Once again, 
I, it's hard to explain to someone why, you know, you like poetry, right? If someone says, like, why the fuck do you like reading poetry? You know, and you're like, oh, my God. And you go on these long pontificating <laughs> fucking explanations. And in the end, people are like, yeah, it fucking rhymes, man. Yeah, like, yeah, you gotta like, be there. Man, hickory dickory duck, you know? Like, it's like, you know, you almost want to you, you want to mock the kind of fucking the, the, the beauty that someone finds in the intricacies. And by... Uh, and, you know, I'm prone to this as well for the intricacies I think are worth mocking. But yet, um, I think that there is a point and a reason to all of this. And part of the beauty of Malik's vision is, um, you know, he he does this in a way that um, required so much effort, time, and fucking meanderingness and uh, uh, trying to discover it. And um, to, to, to take so much liberty with your audience takes a fucking boldness and a courage that the vast majority of filmmakers are unwilling to even consider. And that alone, I think, requires some fucking, at least some uh, attaboys. I, but everything you just said on paper isn't like defending poetry. I mean, we have, we're, we're trying to deal with the, the disconnect that we're having about the efficacy of the romance in a film with a love triangle that has class dynamics that is set against absolutely gorgeous backdrops there was another th there was another thing that came up in the middle of what we were just talking about there it was it's basically the peacetime equivalent of war hardened romanticism it has all the things that are supposed to be very easy shoe-ins for a good romance and i hate it mm -hmm. like that's that's half the point of putting things in war is to make it feel real that's why superhero movies you know the, well that's what he did 20 years later the, that's why every superhero has to have a mom who dies at the hands of the bad guy like the worst pot like either themselves or from like literally it's the worst thing in guardians of the galaxy is the their need at the literal first frame of the film to excuse that star lord is a good character because his mom died of cancer right like, that is the most, this is stupidest fucking plot point. Like, I didn't need that. It, in fact, I would prefer those films if his mom was alive and was just sending him tapes. Mm -hmm. That would almost be better than needing this sappiness of being, oh, his mom died and all the memory he has of his mom are these tapes. I don't fucking need that. And I didn't need this out of, like, I'm wondering now all of a sudden whether the fact that there are all of these actually incredibly rote tropes in this film are the reason I hate the romance. Mm -hmm. Like maybe this is in fact less impressionistic than I want it to be. Mm -hmm. um, because I mean, really, really there it's all there other than like witty banter. <laughs> like right. that's the one, that's the one romance <laughs> angle that's missing here. Um, and granted, I like certain varieties of witty banter. They're almost, n almost none of them are romantic though. Right. So, and this is of course the reason why this is potentially an intriguing conversation is the fact that no one's allowed to be wrong at this table about this because I clearly hate this film and you yeah. won't convince me otherwise. And you clearly love this film and I won't convince you otherwise. Right. I just want to know mechanically a little more why, why you, that why might you be. Hate, mm -hmm. Why you hate romance? Like, Sure. No, that's the th like. I'm fine. I'm fine with a wide variety of romances as long as they don't fall into too many of these traps. And it felt at the outset like that couldn't be the explanation here because this is a Terrence Malick film. It's poetry. It's pretentious. It can't be like these other films. But maybe, maybe it is. actually is. Maybe that is why I don't like it. Yeah, I don't I like. Mean, maybe if Richard, I'm trying to imagine it, 
if Richard Gere was a very ugly man, yeah, would that actually would that subversion of the stereotype be enough? Because if it's a poor, ugly person, mm -hmm. the rich guy can be ugly. That's fine because yeah. it's rich. That that overcomes the Hollywood barrier to understanding why a woman would be with this person. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is his name? Uh, Sam Shepard? Yeah. Is definitely less attractive. Yeah, he's not than, a great looking dude. He's definitely less attractive than yeah. Richard Ironically, Gere. he's more charismatic than Gear, but we'll move oh, yeah. beyond that. Yeah. So. yeah, no, we, we covered that. <laughs> we, we, we beat that horse. Yeah. But the, um, but no, I, maybe this is actually too stereotypical. <laughs> maybe that's the problem. Yeah, I think that, I think that overall he, right, in, so I don't I don't know if poetry exactly like lines up in a lot of our lines, right? So I mean I'm not want to, you don't want to dip your brush into the fucking history of poetry, right? But like, you know, so much of so much of the tropes that we get out of uh, out of it is because of poetry, right? When we are when we talk about like epic, uh, you know, epic hero, um, you know, uh, Odysseus, fucking, you know, Gawain and the Green Knight kind of kind of ideas, right? Like, well, even our yeah, but even our our entire understanding of love is based on what Shakespeare presented yeah, physical love as in sonnets, which isn't necessarily indicative uh, of actual. I mean, I I have a way more love. technical bone to pick that yeah. I don't, I don't believe what do you mean? that I just, yeah, just I, clear, yeah. I don't believe that the Odyssey should qualify as poetry. Okay, okay. I think so. that is a misappropriation from the fact that it was translated in a lyrical way. I don't think that's how that should have been read, unless the Bible was poetry. Well, I mean, you know, the, certainly are parts of the parts of the Bible that are that are that are poetic. I think. That's the, I feel like that's much more of an edge case than it's normally led to be. Okay, so well then, if could you? Were, you, you, you I mean, I, I don't want to second guess the ability of a truly genius author to do so, but you can't write 6,000 lines of a poem. Mm -hmm. You can't think about them that hard. He never wrote anything. It was still oral back when that was... It, it's, it was translated like, later. Like, and part of, part of the conception of poetry... <laughs> he sat there with like a lute or something and just sang it to I, people. <laughs> I mean, the conception of modern poetry is supposed to be that there is a tremendous about a, amount of rumination in the way that the words fit together and the way, I mean, even now there's an overemphasis on this, but even the way they lie on the page is supposed to matter in a way that the Odyssey and things of that nature, they, they can't. Okay. So then let's take that, let's take that idea of poetry and apply it to days of heaven, right? So as, as days of heaven appears on the screen, right? Like I think that is the, that is the strength of this film and it, and the best case to make for its poetic fucking nature. Oh, and I'm not second guessing that at all. That's, okay, yeah. I mean, mo that's why I like movies because I mean, and I, as someone who would theoretically be writing prose as an essayist, my mm. essays are short because I do sit there and edit the shit out of them. Yeah. Like I understand Malick's affliction of spending a year editing a film. Mm. Right. And it's why, you know, why, you know, even Lawrence of Arabia at three and a half hours, it clearly took a long, long time to put that together. Yeah. He could have filmed 30 hours in the desert, mm -hmm. yeah. but that's not what he was after. Well, and I think that, uh, you know, I think too, the biggest problem of this film is that it is, right, it is lyrical yet not contemplative, right? Like there's not a lot of... Well, it's not know, that long. Yeah, well, and it doesn't self-ruminate either, right? There's not a lot of like, um, you know, uh, I, think as you, I think maybe one of the critiques I'll kind of maybe re I'm rethinking as we're having this conversation is the idea that the film itself doesn't generate a lot of the questions that need to be asked as well. And I think that maybe that is a little bit more of a, of a of a valid concern. I think when putting this together, especially my own remembering of his later films that come from this as well, you know, so uh, or even you know other maybe more lyrical or, or, or films that we work to as well. In which case, 
right? If we take up the last film we looked at, which was Lawrence of Arabia, the best questions of that film are directly stated multiple times. Yeah, they're literally in the, the dial. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I, I thought about that after we watched Days of Heaven, is that I think any movie coming out of watching Lawrence of Arabia is tough because that thing is like, because Lawrence is like so perfect. That's a goddamn movie right that there. It is like, that is a hard you know that's that's like a hard movie to to follow and i mean ryan i know you you've been shitting on this concept for a while and i i can respect it on some level but there is a there is a degree to which if if i'm pulling the movie to essay analogy here that i don't like the thesis to be buried okay i am totally fine and this is wes anderson proves this out wes anderson becomes more beautiful as you know what's happening yeah you don't Mm -hmm. you it is better to know exactly what is going to transpire scene to scene in a Wes Anderson film. And, you know, as one, what's becoming my favorite quote on this podcast, a book can only be reread. Mm-hmm. Like, you, you, without actually knowing what you are in for, you can't sufficiently revel in what it is. Mm-hmm. And Lawrence, part of what makes Lawrence of Arabia not feel like a three-and-a-half-hour film is that you know what to think about, even if it doesn't tell you everything. Mm-hmm. In fact, it tells you very little. It shows... It shows and sort of draws the curtain, but it gives you something to chew on. Mm -hmm. And Days of Heaven, I mean, I I understand that Malick is a poet. Mm -hmm. Like, I'll I'll buy that premise, absolutely, because poets also tend to be very cagey about what they're actually trying to say, um, partially because they've been staring at 80 words for so long they don't know (laughs) what it's supposed to say anymore. But which is which is also why I like Billy Collins because it's it's clear that he hates that kind of poetry. But <laughs> but, the, um, but no, it's um, I have a I have a philosophical disagreement with how Malick um, thinks movies should be beautiful, mm-hmm. even though I agree with the technical side of it. Like okay. the locust scene is if objective means anything in critique, that's a beautiful scene. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know what the question was, though, because yeah. <laughs> if we're, I, I mean, the only question he can give us is the title, which mm-hmm. is why we had to ask it, because there's no other fucking questions right, yeah. in the air at the end of this film. No, and like you said, there, there's some, like, having having so starkly, I mean, these, you know, Lawrence of Arabia and Days of Heaven are on, are on really different sides of, the, of the, the pendulum as far as, you know, as far as storytelling ethos goes. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so... Although they are both basically films about there being no devils or saints, although that's a pretty common theme, so that's not surprising. Yeah, absolutely. Well, no, no you know, the, the lack of the lack of purity uh, uh, in the world as well, I think, is is a major thing that goes through this. And you know, the the, the fleeting nature of this film too uh, is difficult because in the end, um, you know, I, Lawrence of Arabia was hang, uh, Lawrence of Arabia hung around with me much longer than Days of Heaven did on upon reviewing. Right. Okay. Like, you know, like, I mean, I was thinking about Days of Heaven for a couple days afterwards, but then I kind of shelved everything and, and moved on with my life. But, like, even now I'm still, like, thinking about, you know, Lawrence of Arabia a lot, you know, even... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, several weeks afterwards, like, no, that movie comes back. And O'Toole did a good job in God that Goddamn, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think, too, that, you know, the the charismatic side to this thing is what is most holding this back, too, right? Like, there is so much charisma in the storytelling, filmmaking, relationships, all through that. And um, But at the same time, I just think that... You know, when when you when I am and and thinking about and looking at and reviewing uh, movies, um, you know, when I look at like some of the best stuff in Coen Brothers, um, you know, the the kind of um, 
you know, the atmospherics that I think that are in within Coen Brothers, I think has a direct line to a lot of this stuff as well. I think there's stuff in, um, in terms of like landscape and, and, and landscape as storytelling. Mm -hmm. I think that, um, no country for old men, uh, has a lot of uh, comparisons to this film. Oh, as well. absolutely. And, um, I think that there's just, you know, I think there's a lot to draw upon, um, what becomes a little bit more modern in kind of, uh, in, in filmmaking in the last 20, 20 years that owes a kind of debt to Terrence Malick, um, because that he is amazingly influential in, uh, in a lot of filmmaking too. And so unfortunately you are, uh, much better cultured for having watched it, uh, despite the fact that it doesn't feel that way, I think. No, but that's, that's the thing. The Coen brothers took the right parts out. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no. <laughs> they took, they removed... They, they removed Richard Gere from the equation. Mm -hmm. They added well, a lot of. Uh, they Cohen added a lot of. Are stronger storytellers than Malick has ever been. Well, and they're but they're also they're, well, they're also top ten storytellers in cinema history too. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah, no, 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 no. I mean, they, they they pulled the right influences, and the thing like if if the Coen Brothers had made Days of Heaven, it would be a much funnier movie. It would be. It would be a much uglier movie. Um, it would, well, they okay. They, they the kind landscapes of would that. still be pretty. No, they kind of did that. If you take that, if you take something like Oh Brother Where Art Thou, which stars George Clooney, which should be like a Richard Gere equivalent, essentially, but it wasn't because like, like they got him down to looking like a down dirty thirties <laughs> type of guy who was still relatively unlikable, but had like enough comic relief that you could follow him through this. Was just as big of a fucking asshole as Richard Gere was in this movie, and like Clooney is way closer to Pitt though in terms of so? his asshole his assholishness. Okay. Like I can I can much more tolerate George Clooney. Like, Richard Gere feels like he has something to prove every second of his life. George Clooney is slightly embarrassed at how attractive he is. <laughs> he, George Clooney okay, can, okay. George Clooney so, is never capable of fully owning. How like what a man he is. Okay, so if we had put shows. anyone else in the main character of this film, no, would that's, that's what I've been trying to do. Is like uglier gear somehow work. worked? Oh well, suppo I don't, supposedly, I don't think so. supposedly Al Pacino turned down this role. Um, that might have been aggressive. Yeah, that would have been funny. Yeah, that would have been good. But I think too you to know, imagine his meteoric rise. Yeah. Look, okay, you guys, being a drug I am fucking over with this fucking Godfather approach to Al Pacino. You, you guys, all right, dog I don't even like the Godfather. I know, I know, but that's, that's what I mean. you guys hate Al Pacino because you fucking hate the Godfather. Fucking no, 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 um, I love Al Pacino because I, I have a problem I like. I'm just saying that in this movie would have been slightly more aggressive had Al Pacino played the main role. No, yeah, no, I, think, I like because of Scarface. No, his look, his his his. Let's just call it his. Foot front forward, his foot forwardness, right? Um, I have to remember that he had a lot more subtle parts in the seventies. Or it was, but it was a, sh <laughs> but you know, or or like you know, maybe his idea wasn't all that good to fucking begin with. Like if you're, if listen, if you're gonna fucking sell your girlfriend, if you're gonna whore your girlfriend out anyways, you get what you fucking deserve. Well, through his mannerisms and the way other people don't like him. So that's one. <laughs> so you have through through the actors acting. Yeah, that's one element. And the How way the other people act, act him. toward him. And, and then why are they all acting? Because they're reading lines. Mm -hmm. So it's mm -hmm. the writing. Yeah. Right. And then you have the the, the pictures that are showing you like the context mm -hmm. for all of this happening. Mm -hmm. Right. So as a to blame him, you can blame the people that were doing his makeup. 
or the people making the decision who decided to cast him or cast him exactly like you know but like this ryan o'neill should should have started it (laughs) oh man there's some there's some good ryan o'neill moments in in barry london too have you seen have you seen barry london david no Uh, what's the kubrick movies you've seen a very few. He's seen Full Metal um, Jacket and the Space Jacket one that we watched. Or, yeah, I don't think I've seen any other ones. Oh. Yeah. Oh, good stuff. <sighs> get, we'll, we'll hold, I think Al Pacino would have improved it tremendously because you can't put enough makeup on him to make him make look, that look good. I, scrappy. Don't, yeah, I don't think the story would have been done many favors. Though. But the thing is, you know, but, the, but you that's would fine because he's a he's he's the right kind of douchebag. Yeah. Yeah, he's got uh, and he's got the presence maybe. and 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 like wounded manliness. I think maybe. to kind of fucking pull it off a little bit. Well, I, and he's someone I mean, that you would expect to him. accidentally kill somebody once or twice, or maybe even three times. Well, Who knows? Turkey jerky in his movie. Well, also, <laughs> who are you talking to? Also, no, it mean? would it would make the question it would make the question work in the middle uh, when when Gear slash Pacino go off mm-hmm. and they're do. It, it would have me actually question whether he is going to find another life outside. Okay. Mm-hmm. In a way that Gear doesn't give me that impression. Pacino feels like he would leave. Right. Yeah. Like he's not he's he may be forced off, but he would then do something with that. Like there's the mannerisms of Gear pretending to be honest in a way that he's just not. <laughs> um well, I think he's he's a vapid, He doesn't vapid sell character, you know. There's like He's, he's the annoying ex-boyfriend who won't go away. Yeah, that is true. <laughs> you know what I mean? And it's just like... Just you're like, you're unemployed again. Point. What did you do now? And I don't care what you did. It's just get the fucking point. You know what I mean? You're like, get the fuck out of here already. Jesus. Good stuff. I this, was, this was contentious. Oh, I like it. I like Pretentious. <laughs> A lot of good dialogue. Contentious. Yeah. Barry, so Barry Lyndon coming up next when you get back from... Yeah, Michigan. yeah. Awesome. That sounds good. We lost like five minutes in there, but that's fine. Okay. It was at the very end. It was better than losing all of it. So. Well, then somehow I just kind of reappear into this. Woo! What? Yeah, no. That's you, the voice you will just of Lizzie. Yeah. Coming in. Yeah. Yes. yeah, it just shows up in the middle. Um, but in any case, uh, yeah, it'll be a couple weeks before that's out. But that's fine because it's a couple weeks before all of these come out. Okay. That's pretty much how it works. Um, in any case, uh, there will be other things on the website, but I don't know what they are. So for now, we're just going to say... Uh, Merry Christmas. Cole, Ryan, Lou, thanks for being part of the Machination Log. And Merry Christmas, Kwanzaa, and the rest of them. So.